This is Connected by Nutrition, a podcast brought to you by Nutrition Ireland and designed for healthcare professionals only. Hello, my name is Amy Megan, and you're very welcome to the Connected by Nutrition podcast. In this episode, we're focusing on nutrition and sports performance, and we're joined by two guests today. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Noreen and Brendan. It's great to have both of you here today. Um, maybe as a start, would you both like to introduce yourselves to the listeners? Hi, Amy, um, and thank you very much for inviting us to speak uh, today. Uh, my name is Noreen Roach, and I work as a performance nutritionist uh, probably um, for well, we'll just say over 20 years. <laughs> and my main role has been working with uh, Kilkenny GA over that time period. And then I've also worked with varying other um, sports, individual athletes. I've done some media work. Um, but I guess my main experience here would be with uh, Kilkenny GA. Lovely. Thanks, Noreen. Uh, Brendan? My name is Brendan Cotman. Um, I uh, currently work in for Nutrition. I'm a hospital key account manager, um, but I also work privately as a performance nutritionist or a sports dietitian. Um, started working probably doing that about five years ago when I was living in, the, in Scotland. Worked with a variety of athletes from rowers to runners. Rugby was my main focus, um, so it was more uh, um, sports uh, orientated, um, where I worked with a number of teams and whatnot, but did work with some individual athletes um, as well. And I just completed the IOC diploma in sports nutrition there in the last year as well. So, Brilliant. Thanks, Brendan. So there's definitely a wealth of sports and performance nutrition experience and knowledge between the two of you. So we'll just get right into the podcast now. So we know that nutrition is an integral part of sports performance, and we know of much more than we would have done so in the past. As both of you have experience working with teams, what would you say are the key pillars of sports nutrition for teams nowadays? Noreen, I might start with you on this one. Uh, thanks, Amy. Yeah, so I suppose um, one of the things I would have seen is the number of changes over the last number of years in obviously from where we were 20 odd years ago to now. And it's been really great because we've so much more evidence. I think with teams in particular, there's a lot of really strong support for nutrition now. And one of the things with um, teamwork I would see is how you integrate and work with um, the other members of the backroom team, et cetera, and the management. But when it comes to the players or athletes, I think that while it's a team and there's a lot of um, generic aspects to, you know, looking after hydration, making sure that everybody is um, following the programme for whatever stage they're at, be it weight management, be it pre-season, be it performance in terms of competition, um, even within a team, though, every player or athlete is individual and different. And I think one of the big things for nutrition and sports performance now is looking at those individual requirements, um, you know, outside of the actual overall team, because ultimately nutrition is around how each person can um, work and train themselves properly and optimize their performance. So I think that's one of the biggest things to consider with team um, sports. But, the, you know, the, the basics and the pillars are similar for everybody. And that's really around how you can eat and drink the right food to optimize your training, your recovery and your performance ultimately. Um, and it's addressing those changes at whatever level. Um, I think one of the key things is 
looking at your basic nutrition as the most important part. You can do all you want with, you know, recovery, uh, with eating and drinking the right things on a training day, but you need to get your basics right. And I think that's what we're seeing more and more is, you know, there's no shortcuts. You've got to, you know, get everything right. Um, And I think that's very evident. And we still have our main pillar of um, sports nutrition, which is that carbohydrate is the optimal fuel source for sports. Um, and then we back that up for with protein for both performance and recovery and then all of your micronutrients and everything else, which I'm sure we'll discuss as we go along um, through the podcast. Thanks, Noreen. And Brendan, from your perspective and your experience, what would you say are the most important nutritional pillars for sports uh, teams? So I suppose just what Noreen finished on there um, with regards to uh, the different pillars, a big part of it is uh, kind of a healthy, balanced diet, for want of a better word. Um, it varies from whether you're working with uh, individuals or with athletes, um, what you're going to concentrate on. Um, a lot of the time, someone can come to you with a want or a need. I want to get bigger. I want to get stronger. I want to get faster. I want to get leaner or whatnot. And often the job of, of someone within a sports dietitian or performance nutrition role is stripping that back down to right how do we actually get there that's the end goal that you want but how do we get there because a lot of people are just looking for the, the, the fast fix and the, the the sad thing is there is no fast fix and you do need to work on a number integral number integral parts before you actually get to that um and like a, a well-balanced healthy diet is f- fundamentally the most important thing you then add on the little bits onto that, be it hydration or be it, uh, you know, protein or carbohydrates or whatever you're working on with that athlete, uh, depending on whether they're an individual uh, in an individual sport or in a team sport or whether it's just a recreational uh, person that you know, goes to the gym a couple of times a week and maybe runs a couple of park runs. Um, what you start with will always be very, very similar. Um, and the different steps that you take them through will vary depending on um, depending on the end goal for that person. So I think that would be the, the main uh, pillar that for me it would be concentrate on the basics and then work your way up from there. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. And it's great to hear from both of you on that. Like what Brendan, you're saying is really, it's like going back to basics, healthy, balanced diet. And Noreen, you're really focusing on the individual requirements of the whole team then ultimately affect the success of that team. So like everyone needs to focus on themselves, really. And Brendan, you've worked with different athlete groups over the years and you've probably seen maybe a few dietary trends like the vegan diet or the keto diet. Among those athletes in particular who are following specific diets, are supplements necessary for them to reach optimal performance? I feel like sometimes there's like misinformation and misguidance in the industry in relation to supplementation. It'd be good to hear your views on that. Yeah, um, absolutely. I suppose uh, there's two parts to that question. The one is all, I suppose, the different types of, um, you know, trends, diets that someone may be following. There is so many of them. Social media plays a, a massive part of that because it's where people often gain gain information and whatnot, can gain really good information, but can also gain not so good information as well. Um, as you said, like the keto diet, plant-based, high protein, et cetera, that, you know, you, the list is as long as their arm um, in terms of the different types of diet. 
diets. Um, and there is a want there, you know, people want to try something new. Um, you know, there's a lot of research and evidence that sit behind uh, certain diets, um, depending on what one you're looking at. Um, but it's, I suppose it's important when you're talking to someone and when they come with, you know, I want to start following this diet or I want to do this because I've read it somewhere. Ask, you know, finding out the why. Why do you want to do this? Do you want to do this to optimize your performance or to get better at something? Um, or do you want to do this because I've seen it on Instagram or I've seen it on Twitter and it looks good? Um, you know, do you know anything about it? Do you know how to do it? Do you know what it involves? And often when you strip that back with people, they're kind of like, oh, didn't realize that was the case or I didn't realize you couldn't have this or you couldn't have that. Um, so it is a really important factor. Um, the second part of the question, as you said, with regards to, to supplements, um, I suppose my view is on that, like supplements are there and they're fantastic uh, when needed. But as the name goes, a supplement supplements uh, your diet. Um, and from what Noreen and I mentioned at the start, like you, you have to have a good foundation of a diet in terms of your you know, your fruit and veg, your meat, your your dairy, et cetera, your carbohydrate sources. Um, and if you if you are lacking in something like, for example, maybe a plant-based diet, they might have difficulty in getting in the required amount of protein for whatever sport that they're looking at just because they're following a plant-based diet. Then there may be a need for, uh, you know, a protein supplement of some kind to help meet the requirements that they need. Um but it would be very much dependable. It's so individualized. It's very difficult to make a, a statement on it. It depends on the person. It depends on the scenario. Um, and then it depends on the type of person it is, whether they're recreational or whether they're elite, because there's different parameters that you would have to look at depending on them being recreational or, or being elite. Because like elite athletes that participate in professional sports will... Um, will be tested regularly. So what they take in terms of supplements needs to be very, very regulated. I'm sure we'll, we'll probably touch on um, uh, towards the end as well. Um, but if it's someone just from the general population, they may not have to, um, you know, follow as, as, as stringent um, as maybe an elite athlete might have to as well. Thanks, Brendan. There's definitely lots of information out there on supplementation in sports performance. And, and as you said, social media plays a huge role in that. And I think it's so important for sports nutritionists and dietitians to be able to speak to their clients and give them that correct information, because we know with social media, it's not always correct. And I think it's important for the athletes to be educated on the importance of just getting the basics right. And then they may not necessarily need the supplementation in the future. So good to hear from you on that. And then Noreen, go, coming to you next now, from your experience, what are the most common mistakes or misconceptions that you've heard from athletes in terms of their nutrition over the years? Uh, gosh, there's loads of them. But yeah, um, you could write a book. I, I, <laughs> um, and I think it's influenced by loads of different things, some of which we've touched on already. Um, but certainly uh, th there's very basic mistakes that people make. And the first one is, I think, looking at their um, body composition, you know, there's this, I suppose, view, particularly in, in more recent years, that the same physique applies to all sports and that it's sort of the leaner, the better and the smaller, the better. And it's it's driven somewhat by social media, but not always. Um, I think that there's a lot of people that influence one particular player or athlete at any one time, be it um, the nutritionist, be it the manager, be it the strength and conditioning coach, 
physio and I suppose as I alluded to earlier I think it's so important that everybody works together and has one message and that everyone is kind of uh, saying the same thing. So clarity of the message for the um, individual is really important but I think people always strive for the lowest um, weight, the lowest body composition. So that's important to address and I think as well more recently I would see that players are very informed and, and well informed so also you need to take them into account when you're discussing their goals so what is it they want what is the right uh, weight what is it they want to be able to do what sprints what what area we've brilliant information now with GPS data so we can figure out you know what they're covering so I think it's balancing requirements and then the challenge is convincing that player or athlete that they do actually need to consume you know 4,000 plus calories and they do need to consume, you know, up to 60% of that as carbohydrate. I find that challenging a lot because, um, you know, people want to be careful about uh, different nutrients over the years that have got sort of bad press. So that's, I suppose, I put under their um, carbohydrate foods, uh, dairy foods to a certain extent. Um, so it's always cr- trying to correct that. So I suppose they would be um, some of the things I, I do think, as Brendan said earlier, uh, with supplements, I think a lot of um, athletes and players might think supplements first um, in that they would see maybe some shortcuts. So, you know, it's like, well, if I take my protein shake after training, um, that's going to be okay. And if I sort of miss out a meal that day, it doesn't matter. However, what we know with most people is that they actually need a protein and carbohydrate uh, recovery shake. So it's, you know, it's it's that kind of um, thing. And then there's there's practices that people will read about or see elite athletes doing, um, for example, fasted training, which is evidence-based practice for very trained athletes who know what they're doing and who have good support system you know so they've good uh, one-to-one or whatever um, advice on that and what we what I have seen even for recreational athletes just even friends of mine who go and they want to run a 10k at the weekend and they enter into this faster training um, scenario on the Friday and they're running a 10k on the on the Saturday and it's like that is not you're not going to be able to literally move one foot um, in front of the other if you do that so it's also trying to get people who are just trying to improve their general fitness not to take on practices that are not suitable for what they're doing so again trying to get it's hard it is hard because you know it's trying to get access to the right information and interestingly um, I read something recently whereby you know, social media influencers, so to speak, who may have no qualification because they're so confident they can actually um, influence somebody more than the person who has the actual um, evidence and experience. So I think that's a real challenge, actually. So I think the last um, thing, there's there's loads of, of errors and mistakes, but I suppose the last one I would say is where a practice can be detrimental to somebody's health. And we see that now in something that's becoming more um, prevalent. It's called REDS, or what stands for is Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. And it's around where athletes and players don't eat enough to support their not only training, but their actual normal sort of functions of, of daily living, if you like. And that can be detrimental. So that's a real practice that we've got to address and say you have to be eating enough. So, again, trying to balance out that need to constantly reduce intake for that, you know, perfect physique and leaner um, body composition, etc. Um, so people do need to get the right advice. And the challenge can be finding it. Thanks, Noreen. That's so interesting to hear you talk about those misconceptions, because I suppose sometimes we think 
people buy into these ideas and ultimately it'll affect their sports performance. But to actually hear you then talk about how it affects their overall health in the short term and probably the long term as well. It's just it's kind of scary that there's so much information out there freely available that people just buy into. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's great in that we can embrace and there's so much information there, but that is the challenge is finding the right information and also for people who are maybe following a particular type of sports person I'm on Instagram or whatever social media and but that what they're doing may not be at all relevant for your you know whether it's an elite athlete um, following them or a recreational um, player or whatever so it's, it's just to try and differentiate all of the I suppose um, layers that are out there and it's not easy so you know it's important that people know where to go for information. Yeah definitely thanks Noreen. Great. So you've both mentioned that you've worked with elite male sports teams, but in relation to female team sports, what would you say are the key nutritional considerations that are specific to female athletes? Maybe Noreen, I'll start with you on this one. Uh, thanks, Amy. Yeah. And can I just add in there? Yeah, I'm delighted to say as well as the Kilkenny GA, I've worked with the Kilkenny Camogie team, who obviously were very successful in um, December in winning the All-Ireland after a series of losses so that's great so it's really interesting to compare lots of things on female versus male sports and we won't even get into all of that in terms of funding etc and grounds etc but anyway um i suppose the um the principles are the same you know regardless of um we'll say different gender etc i mean there's of course differences in terms of body composition is probably the biggest one and I do remember when I started working with female teams first um, I was sort of in the mantra of the um, or the thinking around male body composition so um, as Brendan would be well aware he's very lucky because male body composition body fat percentages naturally are much lower than females so where we'd be setting targets you know of whatever 10 or 12 percent or less um, in some cases female athlete um, body compositions are naturally higher because uh, females are. So that's sort of a big difference. And what was interesting sometimes with pairs was they would know they'd have either maybe a partner or a brother or something on um, a team and they'd know the differences and were staggered by the fact that their target might be 20% and their, you know, whatever cousins might be 8%. But that's kind of a natural, obviously, phenomenon. We can't really do a whole lot about that. Um, And then there's other specific um, micronutrient requirements, obviously for females, such as folic acid, etc. So you address all of those as in any population, not just sport. Um, but I think what's interesting is the the move or the the how similar requirements are now, um, notwithstanding obviously body weight, maybe physically, you know, smaller or lighter weights, but the principles are the same in relation to uh, carbohydrate requirements, protein, hydration. Um, I think one of the key changes is that, you know, when I was studying initially um, and certainly over the years, we were very familiar with the phenomenon called the female um, triad symptoms where you knew that female athletes were likely to experience abnormalities like, you know, um, osteoporosis because of low mineral density. This would be from probably overtraining and not enough nutrition. We saw amenorrhea, so lack of menstruation, no periods or delayed menstruation um, cycles um, and general, I suppose, um, energy or deficits. And that now has been replaced, I suppose, by what we mentioned earlier, which is the REDS, the Relative Energy Deficiency Syndrome. And that's actually to reflect that the same syndrome happens in males as well. 
So it's not just a female thing. We are able to identify it more so in females because you see those specific um, issues in particular around uh, menstruation. And I think what's interesting and important to say is that um, it's not a normal phenomenon. So some you know, um, doctors and some even, I suppose, um, gynecologists might believe that amenorrhea happens with intense training and it's almost, uh, you know, a result of it, but it shouldn't happen. It's not, it's not a, a normal thing to happen. So we should be really, really careful about that. It tends to be linked to this energy deficit that we see. So it's exactly what we were saying earlier, whereby the person isn't consuming enough calories or enough energy to maintain both their exercise intensity and then their normal functioning. And their normal functioning is optimal health. So that will include everything from, you know, endocrine system to adaptations to training to being able to concentrate and maintain maybe, you know, their their job. So a lot of these players that I would deal with, they work. They're not professional athletes, although they're training at an elite level. Um, they're going to work, they're going to college. Um, so it's really important that we get that balance right. So that's been really interesting for me over the last couple of years. And there's so much um, evidence now, research looking at this particular um, syndrome, but that its existence in males is interesting. Although the numbers are possibly the same, maybe more in males, we tend to pick it up or document it more in females. Um, so I, I think they would be some of the more, I suppose not so much differences, but actually similarities and what we always need to look out for um, in terms of the male and female um, athletes. But uh, but it's great to see that uh, on the whole, in the, in the general consensus, a lot more to do, but for certainly female sports, it's brilliant to see such, um, I suppose, emphasis and focus and they're getting access to support services that have maybe existed for males for, for longer. So it is really good. And obviously, uh, nutrition being equally important. Um, the other thing that um, Brenda and I would would often talk about as well is one thing that's not even nutritional, but again, important for, for it's not necessarily for females, only for males. As part of the holistic approach and to allow your nutrition to work, um, sleep is really important. And I think more and more we're seeing that in like all populations, um, the recommendations change, but now it's, it's certainly saying eight to nine hours of sleep is really important. Um, and that allows the body to recover. It, you know, obviously we produce growth hormone, we produce lots of things while we're sleeping. Um, so all of that helps with the body getting adequate, um, I suppose, time to adapt and rest and make sure that we're maximizing nutrition because, you know, we're not machines, we're not robots. You do need that adequate time. Um, so that's a very important part, I think, of kind of knitting it all together, if you like. So even though it's a, it's not a nutritional um, part or, or system, it, I still think it's really important to mention the importance of sleep and adequate sleep um, for all, certainly elite players and players doing and athletes doing a lot of um, intense exercise, but probably for all of us, we should be, um, you know, that's assuming none of us are at elite level in our sport as well, but for all of us that we're getting adequate um, sleep as well. And I think we really need to emphasize that from, you know, young people right up. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Noreen, you mentioned sleep in there, kind of bringing it all together. Um, and also so interesting to hear that we're moving away from describing the female triad to account for the impact on males and, and describing it as reds now. And Brendan, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I suppose a, a couple of really interesting topics brought up by Noreen there. And a, a big part of it, as, as Noreen said, with regards to, to reds and things like that in the male population, uh, like I've worked with a lot of males, I've worked with females as well, but... 
and that's the thing within the male population. It's not documented as much, but it happens just as just as uh, just as often. Because I suppose within females, there's easier ways of identifying it. So if you can identify something more, it will be picked up more, and then it'll get documented more in terms of papers and all the rest of it. Um, but it is important to remember that, like, because often where you'll see it within both the male and the female is in your restrictive type sports. So like some sports, like field sports, soccer, hurling, camogie, rugby etc um your body weight is not a goal for want of a better word but for some sports like um horse riding jockeys boxers combat sports your weight uh tells you exactly what class that you will go into or like in jockeys like if you're if you're too heavy or too light people can be very fixated on it in terms of getting down to weight because it's part of the sport when you're very fixated on something like that and you want to get down to it, you mightn't do everything right to get down to that weight if it's a, a combat athlete you know a combat athlete or a boxer or something like that they need to hit a, a certain weight range for, uh, the day before a fight um and to get down to that you often hear people you know utilizing unhelpful things you know saunas etc dehydrating themselves and and things like that can work but in terms of uh, doing it properly is really important and getting the good advice from a performance nutritionist or sports dietitian to actually do that properly, not to just decide, right, I'm not going to drink water for a week and I'm going to sit in the sauna for like 10 hours before my weigh-in um, because like that's dangerous to our health. Um, so it's, it's a really, uh, I suppose, an important factor within that. Um, and when you do have a sport, that weight is a goal of that sport. Those things can can come into can come into into play as well. Um, the other thing I suppose following on from that is Noreen's mentioned like knitting it all together and that kind of holistic view of a of a of a practitioner. It's really really important. Yes, we all have to stay in our lanes and stay within our expertise, but we can also I suppose comment on other things. Really important note in terms of around sleep um, that Noreen has made there already. But another important part of it then is rest as well. In terms of rest days, every day isn't a training day. You know, if you're a, a recreational athlete or if you're an elite athlete, elite athletes will have structured training days because it's like their job. Their nine to five is structured within training sessions. But your recreational athlete will, you know, go for a run a couple of times a week, go to the gym a couple of times a week. Currently within a pandemic, it'll be the home gym that they're using. Um, but it's really, really important thing to remember that your body needs to recover. If you keep burning the candle, the candle will eventually go out. Um, do you know? So you, you do need to ensure that you, you're giving your, your body time to adapt to all the stimuluses that you're putting it towards. If you're training really, really hard, you're you're forcing your body to adapt to a new normal. You need to allow time for your body to adapt to that um, and then to get better at whatever you are training, whether it's lifting a weight, whether it's jumping over a, uh, an obstacle, whether it's running on a field. Um, and if you don't, what can then come into play is ill health. And like ill health for members of the general population is, is, is a very bad thing. We've seen that over the last uh, over the last year or so. Um, and it can come into sport then as well, because if you're tired, if you're not, for example, taking enough carbohydrate or something like that, and you're running on reserves, it's very problematic. Carbohydrate being a, a big one, because often people are afraid of carbohydrates. Um, I would very much see as kind of like carbohydrate is king. Um, because you do need to make up a considerable amount of your nutritional intake from it. Because at the end of the day, your brain works off glucose. Glucose is the broken down form of carbohydrate. If you don't have enough glucose in your system, your concentration will lapse. Your, um, 
your your thinking will lapse, your decision-making, because in sport, decision-making is a huge part of it. Whether you score a goal on a soccer field is a decision, and you need to make that decision very, very quickly. Um, so it is really, really important. Um, and I think, I suppose, to, to, to finalise the point that uh, we've said already, that wrapping all that together is the job of the performance nutritionist, the sports dietitian, and working in conjunction with all the other um, all the other uh, uh, healthcare professionals that work with that um, work with that athlete or that person, um, be it strength and conditioning, be it physio, the coach, and then obviously the team as well. Thanks, Brendan. I think ultimately what we're saying here is that it's just so important for athletes to be reminded of the bigger picture and the importance of bringing together the nutrition advice, the training sleep, hydration, and just wrapping it all together for them to get the, the best out of themselves. I suppose, yes, it, it's really important. And as I've said there, staying within your lanes is really important. There's a lot of sports nutrition uh, advice out there that is fantastic and, and so heavily, um, heavily researched in terms of what it is. But someone that's a recreational athlete doesn't need to maybe follow all of that. We can often think just, you know, just because we have a goal in terms of lose a wee bit of weight or get more healthy, that doesn't mean we need to follow, you know, what a professional rugby player or a professional soccer player or a J player follows. Um, so staying within our lanes that way is really, really important. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks so much. So we've come to the end of our podcast and it's just been so interesting and I've learned loads myself. So I hope the listeners have learned loads themselves as well. But before we finish, we would like to do a little quick fire question just for some fun and to have the listeners get to know you both a little bit better. So my question to both of you is what would be your desert island dish? Now, thinking today in Dublin, it's very windy. It's very rainy. So if you're on a desert island now, tropical sunshine, what would you really want? That's a really hard question, Amy, because there'd be lots of things. But today is definitely, is it okay to say spice bag day? <laughs> but anyway, you know, once a year. Um, but anyway, Desert Island, gosh, that is, um, I don't know. I was, try- oh, gosh, trying to think about what you'd have on um, holidays. But anyway, it would definitely involve a glass of white wine, really cold. And I, do you know what I love? Actually, it's a really basic thing, but tortilla chips with fresh salsa and guacamole and that would do I'd munch my way through that for half an hour with my little glass of wine that'd be lovely yeah at the I moment all you can think of is sunshine is fine anyways yeah <laughs> and definitely. a holiday anywhere um <laughs> so that would be kind of blissful for me lovely plain and simple but I would definitely plain and simple that's me <laughs> yeah I'd certainly be on board with that one and what about yourself Brendan was among all the weird and wonderful things I do, I'm also uh, I do a bit of farming, so it'd probably be a, a T-bone steak, a few root vegetables, and as Noreen started there as well, a couple of alcoholic drinks, maybe a six-pack of Corona, go down a treat with it. Oh, lovely, lovely! I'd happily come <laughs> to either of your desert islands there now today. <laughs> Noreen and Brendan, it's been an absolute pleasure having you both on the podcast today. Um, thanks for coming along, and I hope to see you all again soon. Take care. Great. Thanks, Amy. Bye. Thanks a million, Amy. This is Connected by Nutrition, a podcast brought to you by Nutrition Ireland and designed for healthcare professionals only.